That was a sweet time of fellowship so far. The music and the Lord's Supper, that was our first Lord's Supper with you uh, since we visited a couple times and then today. And uh, I was holding my daughter Violet, who after I took the bread told me that my breath smelled like garlic bread. So I did not know it was flavored. So uh, <laughs> that's tasted really good though. It wasn't like that stale cracker wafer stuff that you can get sometimes. So uh, oh. <laughs> as well as it's uh, our first Lord's Supper, the Sobitzes. Um, and if I haven't gotten to know you, I guess I should say, please come up after service, uh, introduce yourself. I will try to introduce myself. Uh, one thing I have a bad habit of is just talking too much with one specific person or family, and then I forget to get away to meet everyone. So please feel free to interrupt uh, at any time. That doesn't go for my daughters. Sorry. Okay. Uh, I'm going to try the PowerPoint today, so please bear with me. Uh, that begins with a map of where we are in the book of Philippians, and that's where Philippi was in antiquity. If you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians 1, and I will put the scripture up for you. There we go, look at that. The title of today's sermon is A Flourishing Community. Let me read. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you, in my every prayer, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to the completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you, because I have you in my heart, and you are all partake partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how deeply I miss all of you and with the affection of Christ Jesus. Uh, Heavenly Father, God, uh, I pray uh, as we read this affection that Paul has for the Philippians and that the Philippians have for Paul, Lord, God, that it would stir that type of affection for us in Cornerstone, Lord. God, that we would learn to love one another as, as they loved one another, to serve one another as they served one another, to pray for one another as they prayed for one another, to keep the gospel central as they began their partnership in it, Lord, and awaited the return of Jesus Christ to complete our salvation and his great work. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we did our overview and our background of the book of Philippians. Today, we're going to begin to dig deeper into Paul's letter. The email I previously sent out this week said we'd examine the first 11 verses. But after preparing this week, I thought it would be better just to focus on the first eight and then cover verses 9 through 11 next week. Verses 1 through 8 on the screen are Paul's greetings to the Philippians, his salutations, and then he expresses his love and devotion toward them. He reassures them of his love by pointing out the reasons and main reason why he feels such warmth toward them. 
Mainly, they have been partners in gospel ministry with him for years. And because of it, it brings him joy whenever he thinks of them. And they especially bring him joy when he prays for them. I mean, without a doubt, just in this section, the first eight verses and throughout the letter, Paul and the Philippians have a dynamic relationship. And the church itself in Philippi is also a flourishing community of believers. Therefore, the goal of today's sermon, as we examine these first eight verses, is is to see the relationship between Paul and the Philippian church and to see what contributed to the success of their community. And then that success will be our application. Now, the meat of the sermon will be in verses 3 through 8. But I, I want to point out something in verse 1, because it contributes to the flourishing of the church in Philippi. And I, I don't want it to go unnoticed. And it's, it's that the church had structure. It's in the final clause, including the overseers and the deacons. We see that as he addresses the church at Philippi, he also addresses the overseers, the elders, the shepherds, and the deacons, the servants. In 1 Timothy, Paul wrote to Timothy how to organize and structure leadership in every local church, especially with those who shepherd and serve the congregation. He told them these are the men This is how you know they're qualified to be a shepherd. This is how you know they're qualified to be a deacon. To quote many men, but specifically Paul Tripp, he said, if you show me an unhealthy church, I'll show you an unhealthy leadership. The men that Cornerstone have shepherd us and the deacons we have serve us is of vital importance. A church that desires to flourish, to be a flourishing community, must stick to the leadership that God has ordained in His Word. That was just a side point. Great relationships are built, point one. Paul says, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you, because I have you in my heart, and you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how deeply I miss all of you with the affection, of you, with the affection for you of Christ Jesus. In these verses, Paul reminds us that, that meaningful relationships don't fall out of thin air. We may desire a wonderful relationship. We may want great relationships with all the benefits of great relationships, but it does not become great without effort. I told this story to Drew this morning, and I'll share it with all of you now. Early on in my marriage, I served tables to help pay through seminary, along with many other things I did. But when I would come home at night, April would be in the bedroom, already pretty much ready for bed, and I would sit down with my dinner in front of the TV in the living room to veg out. Many times April would ask me to come in and talk, share my day with her, listen to her day. But I didn't want to. I wanted to eat in peace and just unwind. Yet over and over again, she would tell me how much, when I got home, 
She wanted me to come home and spend time with her. But night after night, there I was, eating my food alone in the living room, just trying to relax by myself. And then one night, maybe morning, she said to me, you know, if you wanted to remain a bachelor, you shouldn't have gotten married. <laughs> it wasn't as funny to my heart. It hit pretty hard. Because at that moment, I realized I wanted a great marriage, but I hadn't considered the cost of what it would take to create one. My wife was not going to feel loved if I kept showing her that I didn't even want to be around her when I got home. Therefore, I knew I was going to have to put in more effort in order to have a healthy or a flourishing marriage. And the same thing goes for all relationships. I only get one family illustration, a sermon, so I will not uh, do that anymore. All right, back to Paul and the Philippians. They, when we look at, this, at these verses, they had substance and they lived intentional. They shared experience together for the cause of Christ. They spent time sharing meals with each other. We're going to see that in Acts 16 today. They suffered together and they rejoiced together in Paul's presence, in his absence, in prison. Whatever it was, they continued to pray for and encourage one another. Their love was like a, a seed that was planted and watered. It was nourished and it was cultivated. And therefore, its roots grew strong and blossomed into this deep affection that they had for one another. It's, it's a wonderful demonstration. Their relationship is a wonderful demonstration for us that no relationship becomes great without tremendous work from both parties. If we look at it, Paul doesn't just say he has these warm, fuzzy feelings about them because they're just so spectacular in of themselves. And Paul's fuzzy feelings were formed over time, and we find out why, because they continue to do life together. And we're going to see it began with the gospel. I think it's important to observe that their bond isn't special in, in, in a way that we cannot attain one just like it. We can. And that reality must not go unnoticed. Because throughout the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, we're told that if relationships will just function the way that God says they should, they will all flourish and that goes for relationships with our friends our parents our marriages and most importantly god and the takeaway from this first point is that the, the greatest relationships that we know that we see that are visible that we can have they are built not assumed Point two, flourishing communities are gospel-centered. Look at verse five. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. To briefly reiterate on the first point, Paul isn't, well, maybe not the first point, I don't know if I said this. Paul isn't writing to people he just met. He's writing to a church that he has had years of gospel ministry with. And we'll turn back to Acts 16 to see where it began. Or look at the screen. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready 
at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Semithrace, and the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony in the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. The book of Acts right here tells us that Paul was sent by God to Philippi to preach the gospel. That's his purpose. And I think this purpose for him going gives weight to a specific debate that's gone on throughout the years on a, the method of evangelism, which, which the debate is, should we share the gospel when we first meet someone, or should we build relationships with them and work the gospel into their life? Now, first and foremost, we must affirm what the Bible affirms. Paul's primary purpose for going to Philippi was to proclaim the gospel. And we too should take every opportunity we are given to be faithful witnesses. We should be attentive, intentional, and ready to tell people about the cross of Jesus Christ. And we should also be willing to get, the know, to, get to know the people that we're sharing the gospel with. We should ask ourselves, am I actually interested in this person? Or am I just interested in checking off my christian duty of evangelism box if we share the gospel with someone in town and then never show any interest in them again when they see us at safeway or getting a pastry they're not going to remember how much we told them god loved them they're going to remember how much we didn't so that to answer the debate when should we share the gospel is really twofold Always be willing and ready to share the gospel, but also be just as ready and willing to share your life with those you share the gospel with. We're called to make disciples, not converts. Where we live is our circle of influence. And true discipleship will require investing in the lives of our neighbors. I personally don't separate gospel witnessing from discipleship. And with a few exceptions, usually time's sake, being on an airplane, building relationships should not be isolated from gospel witnessing or discipleship. When Paul arrives at Philippi. He's sent to preach the gospel, and that's what he did. But we're also going to see that he spent time with the people that he preached to. And who received the gospel. On the Sabbath we went outside to the city gate to the river. Where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of these, one of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira. Named Lydia. A dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of the household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So in just this instance, we see Paul went, he preached the gospel. And then the, the ladies, the women who received that message, they did what? They invited him over. 
And Paul's in, in Luke's writing, he said, we were persuaded, we went. We went to their house. And then in verse 25 of Acts 16, still in Philippi, after Paul and they were arrested for casting out an evil spirit from a girl, Luke writes, at about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors, he drew his sword and was about to take his life because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are still here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them, washed their wounds, and then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. I realize we're not all sent to Philippi or all around the world, some to Zimbabwe, to just go and preach the gospel. So that... Acts 16 is somewhat descriptive and not prescriptive, I get that. But we do have two accounts where Paul and the disciples spent time with the people they were sharing the gospel with. And in turn, the Philippians who received their message invited them into their homes. They were intentional about living and, and sharing their lives together. So therefore, now, now that we have that in mind, that's what happened when Paul and, and the apostles first showed up. And so when we turn back to the letter to the Philippians that Paul is writing, we can see that the deep-rooted affection we read from Paul was founded on both parties centering themselves around the gospel. That's what it began with. And over time, their love and commitment grew for one another. And we can see from Philippians that the gospel and their commitment to one another were the two main ingredients necessary for a flourishing community. The gospel and commitment to one another are necessary for it to be a flourishing community. And the fruit of a gospel community is sweet. When individual families, just families, center themselves around Christ, not only do husbands and wives stay together, but they portray a marriage that has been favored by God. Sin is repented from. Couples graciously forgive one another. When, when Christ is worshipped in the home, when He's the centerpiece of, of, of the home, husbands love their wives more than they love themselves. Not always. But wives willingly trust and follow their husbands because they know their husbands submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. Fathers remain in the home and dads are present in their children's lives. That's just the nuclear family. Because when those families who center themselves on Christ come together with more families like those families, then you have a gospel-centered community. 
then you have a church. And there's nothing sweeter than being in a thriving household over God where everyone's lives are centered around Jesus Christ and his gospel. That's the deep-rooted fellowship that Paul and the Philippians have. And if we want deep-rooted fellowship, that's what we're going to have to do as well. If it's any encouragement, I believe that already was taking place in this church, and that's why I brought my family, because I wanted to be one of those gospel-centered families with your families. But the effort isn't just done by us. In fact, the third point is that flourishing communities, a flourishing Christian community, a flourishing church, is all a work of God. We see that in especially verse 6. Paul says, I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to the completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Verse 6 is probably one of the most known verses in the Bible. He who started a good work in you will carry it on to the completion until the day of Christ Jesus. We love verse 6 because it's the assurance that our salvation is secure. At least that's why I love verse 6. It reminds me my salvation is secure. And Paul reassures them in verse 6 that they can't lose their salvation. Neither can we. Paul's telling them that what Jesus began, he is going to complete. And the fact that we love it because it reminds us we can't lose our salvation, the, the emphasis is usually on not losing our salvation. And that's good. But Paul also says that Jesus is the one who started this work in us. I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work. He's the creator, the architect of the church. Every flourishing community in Christ is built by Him and the grace of God. As sinners, we depend on the grace of God to initiate our faith. We depend on the grace of God to complete it. We, don't, we, don't, we do not lose by merit what we cannot earn by merit. From beginning to end, our salvation has and always will depend on the work of Christ and Him alone. Paul told this to the Galatians in chapter 3, verse 2. He says, did you He asked, Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? In other words, did you receive the Spirit by earning God's forgiveness? Or did you receive the Spirit by believing what Christ had done for you? And of course, it's rhetorical, and they should answer, we were saved by believing what we heard, not by our works. And he goes on to say, okay, in verse 3, if you began by believing, if you were saved by believing, are you now finishing by flesh? In other words, Paul's saying, if you were saved by believing and not your works, then do you have to work in order to maintain your salvation? And of course, Paul's point is rhetorical again because the answer is clear. Their salvation does not depend on their effort at all. It began with God 
and it will be completed by God. The author of Hebrews says the same thing in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. The author says, keep your eyes on Jesus. Fixate your eyes on Jesus. Why? Because He is the initiator and perfecter of our faith. Philippians commentator Moses Silva sums up verse 6 perfectly. He writes, The Philippians, while not in the same position of the Galatians, also needed to hear that their growth and sanctification, already evident through their participation in the gospel, was really God's work. And God would not fail to bring it to perfection. That's good news, Cornerstone. We would be in trouble if our, if our salvation depended on us. In fact, I agree with John MacArthur when he says, if I could lose my salvation, I would. But God's Word assures us that we can't. Why? Because we're not saved by earning His grace. We're not saved by removing the filth we've done or the bad we've done or removing the sin we've done by trying to overturn it or outweigh the scales and the balances by doing more good. That's not how we're saved. We're not saved by anything we do. We're only saved by what Jesus Christ has done for us. We're saved by the wrath of God. Because Jesus Christ, who was sinless, went to the cross and died for our sins. He paid for our sins. And we say, I've already heard that. I know that. <laughs> Why do the preachers say that every Sunday? Why do you just continue to talk about the cross of Christ? Well, just like the Philippians and Paul, in every church that God has built by the blood of Jesus Christ and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, we're partakers and partners in the gospel. And if we lose the gospel, if we remove the message of Jesus Christ and his cross and resurrection, we are no longer a church. We have to remind ourselves of this every day. Why do we partake in the Lord's Supper? To remind ourselves of the blood of Jesus Christ until his return, that our sins are forgiven. Because I don't know about you, I can have some pretty bad weeks where it doesn't feel like he's going to forgive those sins any longer. And we take the Lord's Supper and remind ourselves, no, my effort's not based on me. My faith is based on Christ and Christ alone and what he's done. It's, it's something we just have to embrace. We can't lose our salvation because God is faithful. He, he, here's, here's the truth. Either God's not faithful to his promises or he's faithful to every one of his promises. And God promises in his word, in the Bible, what he's revealed to us. If you repent from your sins and believe that they have been forgiven and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ, you will be saved. That's what God says. That's what God promised. That's why God sent His Son so that we would trust in Him and not ourselves. And we can be confident that God will not abandon His own. I know at times it may feel like God has given up on you or even abandoned you. But here, 
in the Bible, in the Word of God, we're reminded that God never rests until His work is complete. And loved one, loved ones, God is not done with us. He's not done with me. He's not done with you. If we trust Him, if we follow Him, if we embrace the Word of God and submit to Jesus Christ as Lord, we will be and remain a flourishing community to the praise of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who completes this work in us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, God, Lord, I pray that you would, you would encourage us and, and give us the desire to first and foremost be faithful to you, to seek you in all things, Lord, to be led by our Lord Jesus Christ, to be faithful in our families, to be faithful at work, to be faithful as a, as, as a servant, as a member at Cornerstone, Lord, as a member of this, this local body of Jesus Christ, Lord. God, I pray that you would, you would uh, help us to delight in following your word, Lord. Help us to delight in, in, in turning from sin and, and finding joy in the path of obedience, Lord. And then finding joy in the fact that, that even when we do sin, you still forgive us. That our salvation is still secure. Because no matter if we sin in the past or in the present, for those of us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is by his work and his work alone that you forgive every single one of our sins. God, may, as, as it was in the church at Philippi and in the life of Paul and the apostles, may the cornerstone be Christ in this church, and may the gospel be the centerpiece of all of those who come to worship the triune God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.